you look in the bulletin on the page with the scriptures, you'll notice uh, two things. Perhaps the first thing you notice is that the passage from Exodus is the same one that was there last week. And you also notice there's a passage from 1 Peter. Neither of those is a mistake. What we did last week was to focus on giving a general introduction to say, how are we going to approach this big section of the law that we're getting close to approaching when we get into chapter 20? And so we gave introduction of that, saying this is still part of the covenant of grace. That, that let's not get confused as we go through this, that this, <clears throat> this giving of law does not mean that Old Testament believers were saved by keeping the law. They were saved by grace, just as we are today. Uh, and what we didn't get to was one of the best portions of that passage, which is verses 5 and 6, where God gives to Israel these three titles that he says are theirs, that they shall be a, a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so we're going to stay in this passage today to, to look at these and to study what God is saying to Israel here. We're also adding this chapter from 1 Peter chapter 2 because this is where Peter quotes from, the, from those verses. And he says, now to us, to the New Testament church, to the people of God who are drawn from every nation, tongue, tribe, and language, all of us as Gentiles, and he says to us that we are the same thing. He uses those same terms, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So as we look even back in Exodus and see that God is saying to Israel that these are titles he gives to them, we say that is us as well. That belongs to us. And so I want to look at both of these passages kind of hand in hand today and to study these great titles that God gives to his people, to see the privileges and the callings that he has placed on us. So with that in mind, I'm just going to read these two sections, Exodus 19, 1 through 6, as well as 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 12, the whole uh, chapter. So let's all stand together for the reading of God's holy word today. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now reading 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, 
And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, this is your word that you have given to us. Father, we pray now that that as we examine it, as we study it, and as we give our attention to hearing and to, to studying your word, that it will land by the power of your spirit with power and with full conviction in each of our hearts that you will use your word, both the reading and the teaching of your word, to be a means of your grace, to build us up, to encourage us, to convict us, to edify us, to present our Savior Jesus Christ to us so that we may receive him with great joy, that we might rest on him and on him alone, that we might find life in him, that he might receive glory from our time of study this morning and that in all things he might receive all of our praise, all of the honor, for he is worthy. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So you might want to use the bulletin in as much as we're going to be going back and forth a bit between these two passages, and they're both printed in one spot for you there. And I want to just walk through each of these three titles and investigate the question of who are we? Who is the church? What does God say is true about us, his chosen people that he has formed, that he has called to himself, that he has gathered, taken for himself out of every people, language, tribe, nation, tongue, out of all the earth, he has gathered to himself a people and he has given us, as his people, these titles. But first, notice just one thing that's there in Exodus, chapter 19, verse 5. It's the end of the verse. He says, You shall be my treasured possession. Why? For all the earth is mine. Here, as he's beginning to get into these titles, he simply reminds the people that all of the earth belongs to the Lord, that he is the creator of heaven and earth. He is the God who rules over heaven and earth. Everything in heaven and earth is his. To him belongs the kingdom. He is sovereign over all things. And therefore, he says to us that that we belong to him, that he has chosen here, he's chosen Israel. And in 1 Peter, he's going to say that that same truth now applies to us, though we are not native Israelites, right? That we are Gentiles. We're from all over the world. He's going to say that same privilege, all of these titles is going to belong to us 
And it's God's sovereign prerogative to do so because he owns everything in heaven and on earth. And so we're meant in the very beginning of this to see the privileges that are ours. To see the privileges that this is great news for us. Everything on heaven and on earth is God's and yet in his mercy he has chosen his people. See, one of the great things here is that that, that we as Christians often feel that we are in a minority, and we are, and yet we often feel marginalized because oftentimes we are marginalized, and, and as our nation gets more and more secular and more and more hostile to the things of God, we recognize that, that our worldview will be seen as outdated more and more, openly mocked more and more. We increasingly are not going to have any place at the table in the cultural conversation that's ongoing about all sorts of things. That's the reality for us. And so it's easy as believers to, to despair, isn't it? To get discouraged and to look around and to say, we have no voice in the wider world. We have no standing here. We're just openly mocked more and more. And yet it, it's important, therefore, that we go back to the scriptures and to hear what the Lord says. Although everything in heaven and earth is mine, he says to Israel, you shall be my treasured possession. Here's the three titles I want us to see is that we have this unique privilege, we have this unique calling, and we have this unique function. It's a a privilege, a calling, and a function as a, a treasured possession, a holy nation, and a priestly kingdom. A treasured possession, a holy nation, and a priestly kingdom. And this first title is that he says, you will be to me a treasured possession, right? Or the old King James used to say, you will be my peculiar people, right? Some of us are are more peculiar than others, but the idea there is that Israel and Israel alone was special among all the nations of the world because God chose Israel and said, you will be my people. He could have chosen any nation. In his sovereignty, he had freedom to do anything he wanted, and yet he says to Israel, you will be my treasured possession, although all the earth is mine. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He says, you will be mine, and there is no other nation on the earth in the Old Testament that has that same privilege, that could say of the one true God that he is our God. All the nations of the earth worshiped idols of their own making. They worshipped false gods of their own imagination. And yet Israel and Israel alone had the unique privilege that was instituted by God and was initiated by God that they were the people of the one true God. And it wasn't their doing. They could not look to their own wisdom. They could not look to their own tenacity and say, we have done this, aren't we great? It was God who chose Israel among all the nations of the earth. In fact, if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses again is going to echo this same sentiment. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Look what he adds in verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We hear what he says. He repeats the same promise. Out of all the nations of the earth, Israel and Israel alone is his treasured possession. And so he's saying that, of course, to build them up, to encourage them, to give them hope and strength and confidence. And yet at the very same time, he kind of gives with one hand and he takes away with another, doesn't he? He says, it's not because you were the greatest. It's not because you were the, the largest nation, the strongest nation. In fact, he says, at the time, you were the fewest. You were the smallest. You were the weakest and the poorest nation of all those on earth. And yet it says, he chose you because he loves you. Because from all eternity, he had chosen to set his love upon his people. And so you can just picture Israel hearing this and saying, gosh, thanks for that compliment. God, we're, we're the worst, and yet you decided to love us anyways, and yet that's the point, isn't it? God wants his people to know that the reason he loves them is because he chose to love them. Right? If they were to base their hope of God's love on, on the fact that they had earned it, then at some point they are going to unearn it, aren't they? If God only loves them because they are so great, what's going to happen when they're not so great anymore? If God only loves us because of how righteous we are on our good days, what's going to happen to us on our bad days? And so God is very clear in saying to them, you are my chosen possession and I love you and the reason why has nothing to do with you. Right? If you earned it, then one of these days you are going to lose it. But you didn't earn it. And because you didn't earn it, you have nothing to fear. Because you didn't earn it, therefore you can't lose it by your bad deeds. He wants them to know that he's chosen them and it's been purely an act of his grace. So their standing as his treasured possession is, is completely secure. Right? It's completely secure because it rests on the foundation of God's eternal love for his people and nothing can change that. They are his and he will not let them go. He wants them to have the security of knowing this privilege. One of the ways uh, in our family that we've tried to teach this lesson to our kids is that when they disobey and they need discipline, part of the discipline process is always to have a conversation with them and to make sure that they know what they did wrong and to know why they deserve the discipline that they are receiving and we always remind them that in our family disobedience always requires discipline and we also tell them as part of that we remind them that we love them even when they disobey we still love them and we want them to know that every single time because disobedience will always receive discipline and yet we remind them at the same time that we love them even when they disobey and we tell them also, to go beyond that, that God loves them, even when they disobey. And to say that to, to our kids is a way of reminding ourselves as well, isn't it? That God loves us, even when we disobey. Because the reason that he says that you are my treasured possession has nothing to do with their obedience. It has to do with God's mercy. So that we have great confidence, and we tell them over and over that we expect obedience in our family, that they need to learn how to obey, 
just as we do. And yet, we still love them. We want them to know they never have to earn our love. We love them because God has put them in our family. We're thankful that they're our children and they have nothing to do to earn our love. That's what, exactly what God is saying to Israel. What a privilege this is for Israel. That the first title, the thing he starts with, is to tell them the privilege that is theirs as God's people. That they are his treasured possession. Think about just thinking where we are in Exodus. Do you think Israel has any reason to doubt that they might be God's treasured possession? I mean, here they've just been wandering in the wilderness for these three last chapters. And, and we've seen their track record. They're not so good. They've been complaining. They've been whining. Do you think the thought has gone through their head yet that, that maybe just looking at our lives based on these trials that the Lord has led us through, that maybe he doesn't really care for us that much? Do you think they have had any cause in their own lives to doubt the, loves, the Lord's love for them? And so he's reaffirming for them that they are, in fact, his treasured possession. And part of that is to say, there's nothing you go through, no matter how difficult, that can tell you that you are not my treasured possession. Right? We should not judge the Lord's love for us based on the circumstances of our lives. It's after trials, it's also right before the giving of the law. Which is to say that they don't become God's treasured possession after they receive the law and after they learn how to get a little better at keeping the law. Right? There's no trial that can disprove that they're his treasured possession. And there's no level of obedience that can earn them his treasured possession. They simply are by means of God's grace. And that's exactly what Peter says we are as well. That he will take that title, and we see it. with every one of these titles, he's taking that and saying that was Israel in the Old Testament. And yet now, that's exactly what God says to all those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has taken us and made us to be his people. And that title belongs to you. You are God's treasured possession. Peter says you are a people for his own possession. Although all the earth belongs to him, we are a special treasure to God. We are his treasured possession. That is a unique privilege. He also gives us a unique calling, doesn't he? Because he also says, and I'm taking them a little out of order, but he says that they are also a holy nation. This is one of God's enduring purposes for his people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that they, God's people, either the nation of Israel or his people, the church, that they will be characterized as a holy nation. Right? We see it in Exodus. It's maybe a little more obvious there that God has a special desire that his people will be this holy nation and that they will learn how to be a holy nation. Right? As he gives them this law, that it becomes obvious to us that God is holy. And therefore, he has a desire that his people will reflect that same holiness. That in what we do, in our very character, in our, in our being, in our personality, in our actions, that we will be reflecting the holiness of our God. And that's why he gives them this law, so they can know, very practical, very down-to-earth ways, what is the kind of life that honors God. We see it just as much in First Peter, Right? In fact, if you look in 1 Peter in chapter 1, just a few verses back, he says, uh, 
starting in chapter 1, verse 14, he says to them, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And Peter says the very same thing is true for those of us in the New Testament. Sometimes we make this mistake, right? We think, well, since we are no longer under law, but under grace, that, that somehow, therefore, we think the standard of God's expectations for the obedience of his children has been lowered, right? Because in the Old Testament, he gave them page after page after page of these laws with very high expectations. And in the New Testament, we don't get that same level of law-giving And that's actually just the opposite, isn't it? That's actually just the opposite of God's expectations. His expectations have not changed. In fact, if anything, he says now in the New Testament, now that we have a far greater understanding of God's mercy, we've had far greater uh, experiences of his love, we can look back on Christ, man of sorrows, we can see the cost of our sin, we can see exactly what every sin deserved, and yet we see his mercy and his love for us. We're not to be any less holy. We do see that that the expectation is slightly different in the New Testament, just because it says in the New Testament that our obedience comes out of our love for Christ. We get down to chapter 2. In verse 3, he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, Thomas Schreiner makes a comment on that, and I just want you to hear what he says. Longing to grow spiritually comes from a taste of the beauty of the Lord, an experience of his kindness and goodness. Those who pursue God ardently have tasted his sweetness. Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty or an alien moralism. The desire to grow springs from experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. That's exactly what he's saying here in in verse 3, where he says, uh, well, starting in verse 2, that they are to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, he says that's where Christian growth comes from. It comes from the fact that having once tasted the goodness of God, having gotten the taste of his mercy and his grace for us in Christ, that that is is to grow on us and to give us a whole new taste, a new blossoming appetite in our souls to have more communion with Christ, to have more of a close and sweet walk with God. And to say that exactly is to be the spring of Christian obedience of a Christian's pursuit of holiness. He says, Christian growth is not a mere call to duty or alien moralism. And I'm bringing this in because as we approach the law in Exodus 20 and beyond, I want us to keep this perspective in mind. The call to Christian obedience is not an alien morality. It's not a a mere call to duty. What happens when we come to the law in God's word or when we come to any Uh, rules and and expectations. Peter gives just as many, saying, I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct honorable. And he says, what happens when we come to those things as though it's merely a call to duty? An alien moralism that the Bible is trying to impose on it. 
We certainly don't come with the joy of Psalm 119, that the law of the Lord is to be desired more than gold and silver, even much fine gold. What usually happens is we end up coming to the law. We come with some sense of of bitterness, right, or some sense of impending doom, or we just come with a heavy blanket of guilt, knowing that we we really should have done better, right? And maybe if we'd tried a little harder, we could have done better, and we could have pleased God more. But but our main feeling is this is just a, a big load of guilt that's being dumped on us. All these rules, all these expectations, none of which we have lived up to. It's all out of a sense of obligation, but there's certainly no sense of joy. There's no overwhelming sense that the law of the Lord is perfect, that it makes us wiser than all our teachers, that, it is, that the meditation on the law is our delight all the day long. Because that sense, that's all out of Psalm 119, that sense only comes from coming to the law with the sense that this is not a mere alien morality that's somehow being imposed upon us, that, that God is trying to guilt us into doing better or just out of a sense of obligation to obey him. It comes only when we have a tasted that the Lord is good. Only when we've tasted the reality that we are his treasured possession before we have done anything to earn that title. That all the earth is his and yet in his grace and his mercy he set his love and his favor on us and he drew us to himself. And for us, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness, and yet he would become a man of sorrows. He would become a man who was acquainted with grief. He would become a man from whom others would hide their faces. Because he had no beauty that we should look on him. He had nothing to attract us to him, and yet he came and took on himself all of our ugliness, all of our brokenness, all of our sinfulness. To take in his own body the full measure of the wrath of God against sin, the full measure of the cup of wrath that we deserve to be given by God, that he would drink it on our behalf, that we then could hear those words, you are my treasured possession, although all the earth is mine. You are treasured, precious to me. And when we've gotten a taste of that kind of mercy and that kind of goodness, there's a sweetness in that that changes the appetite of the heart. That changes the sorts of things that our heart will long for. Not overnight, but it's a process of working to change us. To, to God has taken out this heart of stone and he's put in a heart of flesh that now has new desires and it has new longings. It has new hopes. It has new dreams. And part of that is it is a new heart that, that loves the law of God that says, in this I find great joy because I have tasted something of the sweetness of communion with God and now I desire much more communion with God. I want to walk in holiness to please the Savior who loves me. I had a, a friend once who, who said he had an opportunity to meet with Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges uh, wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness, and that his whole life was the book that he was known for. And so this friend of mine was having coffee with him, and he asked him, what makes you want to pursue holiness? And Jerry Bridges said, supposedly without any hesitation, he simply said, for the pure joy of it. For the pure joy 
of pursuing holiness. See, that is the, the expression of a heart that has tasted that the Lord is good. That is now able to come to, to not, not only Old Testament law, but the whole of the scriptures, all of which lead us in holiness, and is able to come to those without this burdening sense of obligation and this burdening sense of guilt and say, ah, oh, more that I can't live up to. But it's a heart that now comes to it and says, this is all my joy. Even though I know that I never, any day of my life, can live up to this perfect standard. Nevertheless, it is my joy to receive from my God who loves me these words of instruction to know how can I please my God who has done so much for me. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but out of love. That's the, the heart of Psalm 119 that says, I pursue holiness and I pursue obedience out of joy. That will be the heart that then is able to come and to hear God's law and to delight in it, not to become bitter about it. That's who Israel has been, isn't it? They have seen so much of what the Lord has done for them. They have seen the call of Moses, the plagues against Egypt, the Passover lamb being sacrificed in their own backyards and its blood being put on the door frames. They've seen the great salvation at the Red Sea. They've drank the water in the wilderness. They've eaten the bread. They have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so Peter says to us, how much more for us? How much more have we seen God's faithful and holy and righteous provision for his people? That we now have the privilege to be a holy nation. The third title he gives him, well, in Exodus, it's the second, is that they will be a kingdom of priests. And here, we've seen they have a, a unique privilege, they have a unique calling. Here's a unique vocation. A vocation that God gives them is to be a kingdom of priests. If we think a treasured possession speaks to who Israel is before God, a holy nation speaks to their character and who they are in the world, then uh, the kingdom of priests speaks to the calling before the watching world. The calling that we've received before the watching world that Israel is to be a priestly kingdom. And I want to say, we often read this and we often think of, of the Reformation doctrine, of the priesthood of all believers, that each one of us has the, the privileges of coming to God on our own, that we do not need a priest to mediate God's presence to us, that we have the privileges of prayer and, and reading the word. All of those things are true and all those things are wonderful, but I don't think that's what Exodus means when it says that Israel will be a kingdom of priests. What is a, a priest? Just think about the nature of a priest. A priest is, a, is one who is called to walk with God, but not just for their own sake, but for the sake of others. A priest is one who is called to walk with God intentionally and diligently in holiness, not for their own sake, but for the sake of others. They represent the people to God when they pray for them. We think of the a high priest who would wear the names of Israel on his shoulders as he would go into the holy place, bearing them with him. He would take the people before God and he would lay their needs before them. A priest is one who would offer sacrifices for the people. They would represent God to the people. They would teach the people. The priest, in all of his official priestly functions, was existing for the people. 
he was, of course, called by God to be a priest. Therefore, he was a special treasure to God, and it was incumbent upon him that he live a holy life. But ultimately, the life of the priest is bound up in the fact that he exists for others, that others might know God. And God is now saying to Israel that they, as a nation, not just individually, but the entire nation itself was to be a priestly nation, a priestly kingdom among all the other kingdoms of the earth, that they as a nation would exist not just for themselves, but in order that through them other nations would come to know the Lord, that they bore priestly responsibility. Right? And so they would be, just as, as God would say in his promise to Abraham, that he called Abraham and he said, you will be a great nation and I will make your name great and I will bless you and through you I will bless all the families of the earth. That blessing would come to all the nations but it would come through Israel. And now Peter takes up the same title and applies it not just to Old Testament Israel but he says this is for us as well. That this describes God's people the church from every nation, that this is our calling, not just to exist for ourselves, but to have a priestly vocation, to be a priestly people, that is, a people in whom all the rest of the world will look and they will say, there is where God is dwelling. There is where God is at work. There is a people who is holy to the Lord their God, who belongs to him, who lives for him. Peter follows it up saying, that you will, this is verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I even wonder if he's thinking about the experience of Israel having just come out of the great darkness of slavery and God has brought them into his marvelous light. And he's saying that is who we are and we have the same calling. Now to proclaim his excellencies. See what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what he says? Your responsibility is you keep yourselves pure as a holy nation, keep your conduct honorable, and in so doing, that will cause others to give glory to God. Right? That, that takes in their priestly vocation to be a people through whom others come into contact with God through whom others who, who are unbelievers see what God does and they will see in us who God is and have reason on the great day to give glory to God. This is who we are. These are the privileges and the titles that have been given to us, that we are God's treasured possession. We are his holy nation. We are his kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom that we might proclaim his excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your mercy in calling us to yourself, your mercy in becoming our teacher, our instructor who gives us your word to, to grow us into salvation, that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to you. And so, Father, we, we pray that you will continue your patient work in our hearts. May your Holy Spirit take your word now and, and apply it to our hearts that it might land with great power and great conviction in order that the church might 
grow and that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ might be glorified. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.